want to make mention of Thanksgiving because uh, it's a unique time in, in, in our American holiday system, right? That scripture actually commands us to give thanks in everything. And, uh, and that was kind of why this day was set aside, a unique day to give thanks to God. And so I just want to encourage you this week to, to make a point to be grateful, not just because it's Thanksgiving, but because you follow Jesus. And because we follow Jesus, we should be people that are consummately grateful. Um, the gift of criticism is not a gift, right? It's a sin. Um, and, and we need to repent of that and be grateful. And so this week should be a catalyst, right? We should be always grateful. And then this is just kind of pouring fuel on the fire that we get to be grateful. And, and in that, I'm actually going to pray here in a moment because I know that Thanksgiving can be a hard time, right? People get together with families and we all act like we have no problems, but that's not reality, right? And it can be hard. And so one of the things even this week that I hope we can accomplish as a church is that we might go into those family dynamics and friend dynamics and just show Jesus. And when people argue about politics, we can just show Jesus. And when people want to get you riled up, you can just respond in grace and truth and show forth Christ. And so I think as believers this week, we have a unique opportunity to, to make much of the Savior. And even, even in the world outside the church and our family, when, when we can speak of being grateful this week, let's not stop with just we're grateful to be Americans, we're grateful for good food, we're grateful for time off of work, but we're grateful for the Savior, right? So I want to pray um, and just thank God together as a church, uh, but also pray for us to be lights for Jesus this week. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we are grateful to be in this country, um, a privilege of privileges in many, many ways. And this week is set aside as a Thanksgiving week, um, a, a time that for hundreds of years our forefathers have said we want to be grateful um, on this day in a unique way. And so, Father, we want to express that gratitude because ultimately as followers of Christ, we have much to be grateful for. Um, we we have been forgiven. We have been redeemed, restored, reconciled to God, our Father, um, through the blood of his Son. And so this week, may our gratitude for Christ just increase and swell within us. Father, I pray for those who this week are going to be interacting in, in less than uh, delightful relationships. The reality is, Father, we live in a fallen world and our relationships are messed up by sin. Um, sin that we've done to other people, sin that other people have done to us. Selfishness seems to reign sometimes, and, and we try to put on our happy faces, but the reality is there can be hardship in these, these holiday seasons. Father, I pray that you would give grace to those who are struggling with this week. Grace because maybe they're, they're going to miss family that they wish they had, or grace because they're going to be in contexts that are uniquely challenging. And Father, I pray that we would walk in the Spirit, that we would manifest the fruits of the Spirit, and that even in some of these difficult environments, we'd be able to, to shine for Jesus, maybe not even by what we say, but how we live. And if the opportunity arises, then may we speak with boldness of the hope that is in us with gentleness and respect. And so, Father, we, we cry out to you, grateful, but also because we need you. And so this week, we want to just praise you and then take a moment to, to ask you to help us by your grace. And in Christ's name, amen. And I did not know that Pastor Doug was going to do the announcement about Tuesday, so behind me, maybe... There should be, there you go, Thanksgiving uh, praise and dessert night. Sorry, brother, didn't steal your thunder. Uh, it's in the bulletin. I'm not going to spend long on this. Again, we're doing this as a church because we want to, as a church, celebrate what we're most thankful for. So I want you all to come. You're welcome. We'll pack in like sardines. It'll be a sweet time. Um, but I want you to come 
thinking and praying, how can I, with the church, publicly thank God? Most of our time is going to be spent singing and then giving you an opportunity to, to just say, I want to be thankful for this. And so be praying about that. That's what we do to fellowship with one another, right? We, we respond to God with one another. And you may, oh, I don't like sharing stuff. Well, we're going to be sitting in a living room. You're not going to have to stand up, okay? But we can all just say, I'm thankful because of this. And uh, we'll try to keep it, you know, a minute or two so that nobody has to go 10 minutes and then cut out all the other opportunities, okay? Uh, but we're just going to have time of gratefulness to the Lord. And so we'd love for you to join us. If you need to come late, you're welcome to come late. And we're just going to just have a time of worshiping God together. And then we're going to have a, a time where I'll just share a meditation on the work of Christ uh, because that's what we're most thankful for, I hope, that we are redeemed. So that is Tuesday night. You're all welcome to come. And then Friday, we're back here to eat leftovers with one another uh, because that's what you got to do after Thanksgiving. You just got to keep eating. So let's take our Bibles and go to Psalm 119. I was watching a movie a few years ago, and, and this man was, he, he was helping this other young man learn how to work. And so he told the young man, um, took him out and said, I want you to build this fence line, you know, just digging, pen, fo, uh, digging uh, post holes. And if you ever build fences or dug post holes, it's just backbreaking work, right? And this, this guy was kind of like, oh, you've got to be kidding. I got to dig a hole. And he said, the, the man he was with, this rancher, he said, how far do I have to go? And he just said, don't stop. And, you know, the camera pans up, and it's literally like miles of fence line, right? It's just going to be just this endless. And so this guy spent weeks just digging post holes, right, every eight feet and leveling them, getting the fence up. And, and if you've ever driven out in Wyoming or some of those states where you just see these, these long fence lines, and, and these, these, they take it seriously, right? The fence has to be intact, and they, they'll ride their fence line to make sure that there's not a fence, uh, the fence post that's collapsed because the cattle or the horses, they'll find it. Right? They'll find your one bad spot, and they'll get through it. And so you're, you're constantly checking your fence line to make sure it's all intact. Well, we're going to Psalm 119, and week after week, we're going through these, these verses, and they're like the next fence post. And you're just like putting it in the ground. And I'm like, I think we did it last week. Yeah, yeah, we did. And we're doing another one, and another one, and another one, because we need to be so solid on God's word as the supreme authoritative guide for all of life. And in our day and age where everything is attacking us and saying, yeah, actually, there's another way. There's a better way. There's a new and improved way. No, there's not. And we're just going to keep putting those fence posts in and saying, no, we're holding to the scriptures. So today we're back in Psalm 119, verse 17. And the word of God is going to confront us once again with who God is, who we are, and how we can respond to him. I think one of the questions that we need to begin with this morning is, have you ever felt helpless? Just absolutely helpless. I mean, maybe, maybe you didn't want to admit it. You're like the guy that, you know, the car starts making sounds, and so you pop your hood open, and you look underneath to act like you know what you're doing, and you're just like, yep, that's an engine, you know, and, and you've got to do the manly thing, but, you know, at the end of the day, you should just say, I have no idea what I'm doing. So I'm going to go get help. But you've got to act like you know what you're doing first. Or maybe it was when you, you had your kid and you bring him home from the hospital and you're just like, it doesn't come with an instruction manual. You know, you're just like, I'm struggling with how to do this thing because there's no how-to guide on how to make him sleep or how to get him to eat or how to get him to stop crying. And you just feel helpless. And we, we don't like being helpless. We, we are a culture of control, right? I mean, my, my schedule is color-coded. Is yours? Like, my calendar is laid out 
and my, I like to have everything in order. And right now we're moving and, and it just, I just like, oh, there's a pile over there. I don't like piles, right? I want to be in control. I want to have everything orderly. And it just, it's not there. Well, we feel helpless and we don't like to admit that we're helpless. And this morning, God's word is going to confront us that we're helpless. We cannot know God apart from his grace. We can't get to God apart from him helping us. And in our human pride, we try so hard to get there, but we just, we can't do it. And every religion in the world is living proof of this. I'm going to get to God on my own. I'm going to create another religious system to get to God. And there's going to be another one and another one because I'm going to try to get to God on my own. And so we can talk about other religions, but then we talk about here in a Christian church and man, we're just as guilty of I'm going to try to get to God without admitting I can't. God, I desperately need you. And so this morning, Psalm 119 confronts us with with how we must cry out to God because we need God to know God. We need God to know God. Let's read Psalm 119, 17 through 24 once again this morning. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules all the time. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. Take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your testimonies are my delight, and they are my counselors. Father, this morning we... We cry out to you with these very words, open our eyes. Help us to behold you. May we come away from our time in the word this morning, knowing and delighting and being transformed by you. And in Christ's name, amen. Well, we need to cry out to God because we need his help even to know him. And the first thing we see this morning in this text is that we, that desiring God Desiring God and needing God go hand in hand. There's these two things, desire and need. And and there's there's two, they've got to go together. Desiring God and needing God, they go together. And these are these first four verses. So let's break them down one by one. The first thing we see is in verse 17. The psalmist cries out to deal bountifully with your servant. Here we see this regular cry for grace this regular cry for grace. You did not receive grace when you became a Christian. So if you're a follower of Christ here this morning, there was a moment in time where God did something in your life, you cried out to him in some way, and you received grace. Praise God for his grace. But that wasn't one time, and now you're void of grace. It wasn't like, okay, I'm done with that grace thing. No, no, you you and I are in constant need of grace. And here, the author of scripture is saying, deal bountifully. That's the idea of, of give abundant grace. And so he begins this, this section with a cry to God for grace. And it's interesting that he cries out for grace because he knows the character of God. If you read Psalm 119 or any of the Psalms, you're gonna be confronted over and over with the character of God, right? Just a few, listen to a few of these attributes abundant in steadfast love, covenant faithfulness to you. You and I, our pattern is run from God and his pattern is run to you. 
He is covenant faithful to you. He is loyal to you even when you're not. He is merciful. Like you and I do not get what we deserve. That's mercy. Don't ever ask God to be fair. If God is fair, we are damned to hell. Like that's fairness. But he's merciful. And David or the psalmist knows that. And then he says, he's gracious. Not only does he not give you what you deserve, but he gives you that which you do not deserve. He is kind to you. He is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. I love the Hebrew of slow to anger. It has the idea of God having a long nose. Because when you're angry, your face gets red. And Hebrew is all about word pictures. And so you couldn't make God's face get red. That was the, that was the kind of the play on words. He's slow to anger. I'm not slow to anger, are you? I mean... We're angry when somebody cuts us off. When somebody actually dares to slow us down by two seconds coming home. I mean, we're not slow to anger, but we have a God who is slow to anger. And so the psalmist just cries out at the very outset of this stanza, oh God, be gracious to me. Not because you've never been, but because you always are and I desperately need you to keep being so. Be gracious to me. But I love what he says next. The posture is so important. Deal bountifully with your servant. The posture of a servant. It's interesting that that I think here we have two things. One, David is saying to God, I'm your servant. Another, he's reminding his own heart of who he is. This is who I am before you. And then God, this is what I need to remember all the time. I am a servant. His position before the God of heaven. It's interesting, this word for servant is in the Septuagint, which Pastor Phil talked about a few weeks ago. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is the word for do, is the word translated doulos, which is the word servant slave. You may remember bond servant. And this is really important because here, the, the author of scripture is saying, be gracious to me. I am an, indent, an indentured servant or slave of God. Now, when I use that word slave, I want to be very careful because we're really good at interpreting common American definitions on Bible words. So we think we see servant slave language and we're, we're like American slavery, racism. Don't go there. That's not what's going on here. He's simply saying, you're a, you're a good and perfect master. And you're the only one worthy of living for. I'm yours. I'm yours. Not by force, but by choice. Because there's nothing and no one else worth living for more than you. So that's what's going on here. So when you see servant language, when you see slave language, that's what's, that's what's happening scripturally. And we need to understand that. So here the psalmist says, be gracious to me, I am yours. In, in every way I want to follow you, live for you, obey you, know you, love you, delight in you, I'm yours. And now human relationships, that's not good. But when you have a perfect heavenly father, a gracious heavenly father, an, a consummately good God, there's nothing better than submitting to him. Right. If, if I'm your master, your life's going to be a wreck because I'm not all that nice. I'm not all that good, right? And we all, let's just take it to our day and age that you might have a boss and they're not a very good boss. They're, they're, they're not a very kind boss. Makes your life a little hard. And we come here to God and we're like, wait a second, God, you're, you're in every way perfect and delightful and wonderful. And here the psalmist has no problem saying, God, I am your 
slave. I am your servant because of who you are. So he says, God, be gracious to me. And in that graciousness, I want you to know and I want to be assured in my own heart, I follow you. And look at what he goes to next. I'm your servant. And then he has the word that, that I may live. This is what we see as a purpose clause. God, be gracious to me for one reason. I want to live for you. You know, a lot of us today cry out for grace because we want God to make our lives easier. Isn't that what we do as Americans? God, make my life easier. Here, he's saying, God, be gracious because at all costs, I want to live for you. That I may live and keep your word. And, And I don't really have time this morning, but the idea of that I may live, if you trace that through what Jesus said, who's the one who gives life? There is no life apart from following the God of heaven. We may, you may think that there is, life is good. There's that you know, company, life is good. Not apart from Jesus. Life is kind of a wreck. Life is hard. And we all should be humble and honest enough to acknowledge that when I go my own way, life stinks. Life is not good. Life is a wreck apart from the God who made me. But when I submit to him, life is good. And he says here, that I may live and keep your word. This is like Titus 2.14, right? That you were, you were created for good works. That you might live zealous for good works. And we love in our society free grace, which means live however you want and God still loves you. Not in the Bible. God loves you in spite of you, not because of you. Okay? And God then wants to save you and then he wants to transform you. And there is no intermediate. There's no salvation apart from transformation. And so here, the purpose of grace is consistent with all of scripture that you and I would live and follow him. Isn't that interesting? Last week, and we're gonna jump back to verse nine over and over. He asked the question that I said shaped all of Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? And then in verse 17, the next section, he says, I wanna live and keep your word. Doesn't that sound like the same answer he already gave? Like, I want to live to follow you exclusively. So the purpose of grace is that we might follow him. Now, I want to jump to verse 20. We're going to come back to 18 and 19, okay? But I think 17 and 20 have a lot in common. Hebrew poetry does this all the time. It gives you a verse here, a verse here, sandwiches some in the middle, and we're going to come back and get the middle of the sandwich, okay? Here we see in verse 20 that he, he consistently longs for God, My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Interesting, we talked about he's a devoted servant, a devoted slave. And he says, it's not intermittent. This isn't seasonal obedience. This is a continual longing. The word consumed is best translated as the idea of being crushed. Like literally under the weight of something, you're just being pressed down doesn't leave you alone. I was, at, I was um, talking to Albert um, about getting together with him. And he said, uh, probably not till after I get married. Now, I don't feel slighted, you know, that he's like, hey, man, I don't have time for you. <laughs> I mean, straight up, I'm just too busy. Why? He is, in a good way, crushed <laughs> under the weight of... December what? 10th. 10th. It's coming. And there's a lot to do. 
And, and, and yeah, you might, you're working in your job, you're doing other things, but at the end of the day, everything is thinking about, oh my goodness, I've got to do that and do this and buy this and get that ready and call that person, right? Because you're just crushed under the weight of something coming. That's a good thing, okay? I'm not using that negatively. It's a good gift of God. Here we see the psalmist says, I am crushed under the weight of longing for God. It consumes everything about me. So I just had to ask the question to my own heart this week, what crushes me? What causes me to just be consumed? I don't stop thinking about it. It weighs on my soul. It's interesting, the psalmist says, I am crushed with longing for your rules. I don't know about you, that's not the first thing that comes to my mind. Oh God, I love your rules. Yeah, give me more rules. We're like the consummate anti-rule society. All right, we don't like rules. We don't like laws. We're, we're, gonna, we're independent, so we think. What's interesting, going back to verse nine, how can I keep my way pure? That's the longing of his heart. And since that's the longing of his heart, the rules of God are not burdensome, right? Because the rules keep him faithful to his God. And so he's like, Lord, I love your rules. Why? Because I love you. You know, when I got married, I put this ring on my finger, and it signifies something. I, I'm, I'm, by God's grace, going to fight to be faithful to my wife. You know, that comes with rules. And sometimes they're hard rules. But it's rules, right? And I'm not like, oh, this stinking ring. No, it's a good rule. Here we have David. I love God. I love his rules. Because I want to walk with him. And when we read the word, if our heart is not saying yes and amen, I want that, then it might show more about what you love and what you long for. Because if we are longing for him, we're gonna be crushed with a eager longing for his rules. Because he longs to live for the glory of God. So he delights in the word of God. Because he delights in the God of the word. His great objective of, in life is to live for the glory of God. The old statement, if you don't know what you're aiming at, you'll never hit it. Or if you aim at nothing, you're sure to hit it. You know, if you, if you are ever out target shooting at anything, you, you better have a target. I mean, it just makes sense that you need a target. You know, I mean, growing up, we, we loved bows and arrows, man. I was really good on my bow and arrow, practically a mini Robin Hood. You know, and, uh, and, and we would just shoot everything. As long, the rule was you can't shoot towards the house. Okay, remember, I grew up in the middle of nothing. Um, and so you just, you got really good with that bow and arrow, right? Um, but you didn't ever just like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen now. But isn't that how some Christians live their life? Just aimless, directionless. It's like, no, there's, there's an aim, there's a goal. It's living for the glory of God. It's, it's walking with Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on that and run to the word of God and be just crushed with this burden of longing to live for God. And so the psalmist here has a consistent and stable longing. This isn't fickle. This isn't like, oh, on Sunday I want to live for God. Monday to Saturday, not so much. This is, all of life is consumed by my longing for God. So, we saw in verse 17, we, we want to be, God, God, God be gracious to me, I'm yours. We saw in verse 20, God, I'm crushed with longing for you. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. That's the desire for God. Okay, that's our first point, desiring God. But look at verse 18 and 19. 
we see here that admitting that you need God to actually know him is humbling. It's a humbling posture. Verse 18 and 19, open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commands from me. Here we see first that spiritual blindness is just a reality. Do you admit that you're spiritually blind? Now, we want to be careful. As children of God, we possess the spirit of God, and there is a measure of illumination. Jesus said that I'm going to give you my spirit, the Holy Spirit. It will teach you concerning me. It will guide you into all truth. Amen. So we have the spirit, and we should, we should delight in that. But even with the spirit, we still have our flesh, do we not? And so the spirit's not as free to work and reign because our flesh is constantly fighting. And we live in the reality of Romans 7, like Paul. Oh, I don't understand my own actions. I do the very things that I hate. Like the things that I should do, I don't do. And the things I should not do, I do. And he finishes Romans 7 with, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? Thankfully, he doesn't stop there. But praise be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? But we still live in the reality of struggle. And that's where we are, even here, we must admit there's a measure of spiritual blindness. Think with me for a moment. We're reading the Bible, okay? This is, this is God's sacred word. And somebody who was a Christian rock star, if you will, all right, like an author of scripture. This guy is, this guy is no slouch. Whether you believe it's David or Daniel or some other guy in the Bible, this guy knows his stuff. And he even says, God opened my eyes. I don't know you like I should. Would you please help this sinner to see you and know you? How much more should we admit with eagerness, God, I am not sufficient in of myself. So let me just step back a second and do a little bit of a theology lesson, okay? I'm gonna talk about the noetic effects of the fall, which you're just like, I'm gone, all right? The noetic effects of the fall is this, the, the effects of sin on your mind. So if you're ever reading a book, now you know what it means, all right? The noetic effects of the fall, sin and how it affects your mind, all right? That's what we're going to talk about for a moment. Genesis 3, God's perfect humanity, walking and talking with their creator in perfect harmony, perfect unity, and then they choose to rebel and run from him and go after sin. God's plan is good, consummately good. They had one rule, but just like us today, we hate rules, they buck the rules, just like we constantly do the same. And everything that was so perfect and wonderful began to suffer under the curse of sin, even creation. You might think this creative order is beautiful today, but it even is suffering under the curse of sin. Just wait till the new heavens and new earth. That's going to be even so much better. One of the effects of the curse of sin is our inability to think rightly. That's just a a reality. We like to think that we're know-it-alls, that we have it all together. We don't. All right, we just simply do not. Our ability to think has been greatly hindered by sin. And that's why we all have a measure of bias. I love when people say, this is an unbiased statement. Just, just immediately put that in the waste bin because you know that's not possible. You're biased and I'm biased, right? Or this is objective. Yeah, right. Right, you're, now it might be objective when you're talking about two plus two equals four, all right, unless you're into math theory, which that's fine. Go have that conversation somewhere else, right? But there is a certain amount of objectivity, but objectivity doesn't really exist because we are all corrupted by sin. Our thinking's corrupted by sin, and we really have a hard time with these things. 
And here, the, 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 I think the word of God is getting us to that point. Because of sin, we don't think right about ourselves, about others, and about God. Where our minds need God's help. And so here, we see that the psalmist is admitting, God, I, I can't know you right. I'm a fallen man. I live in a fallen world. I need you. I need you to help me know you. It's interesting that I think 2 Corinthians 4 speaks to this as well. I've quoted it many times because it fits so well with all of scripture where it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, the God of this world blinds the minds. You know that Satan has one goal? To blind you to God. He doesn't care if that happens through the doors of a prison or the church. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter at all. You could be the most religious person in the world. As long as you're blind to God, Satan's winning. Period. You might be a convict on death row. You're blind to God, Satan's winning. That's it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care how you get there. I'm going to blind you to God. And then when you become a child of God and the spirit of God opens your blinded eyes in salvation, guess what? Satan doesn't just go away. Okay, I lost. No, there's still this reality. He is fighting. Fighting that you would deny God. Fighting that you would run from God. And so there's blindness that we have to continue to say, God, I don't, I don't see like I should. I'm so, my mind is so corrupted, so polluted. I need you. Open my blinded eyes. And so, not only because of sin, but because the enemy of God, Satan, we don't think right and we need God's help. Interesting, he says in, verse, in, in 18, open my eyes. In verse 19, he says, hide not your commands from me. This is the same statement said twice. Don't see verse 19 and think, oh, God's like a heavenly miser doling out little bits of what he's hiding one at a time. That's not what's going on here. The idea is, God, I, am, I can't see because everything's hidden from me. Reveal it to me. Make known to me who you are. It's interesting in verse 18 that I would behold wondrous things out of your law. Here I think we see that we're pleading with God to know God. This isn't some experientialism we're asking for. It's not a, a mysticism or an emotionalism. It's a God, I want to know you. Isn't he the most wondrous of all things? Isn't he most, the, the most glorious of all things? So what we're asking is, God, I want to know you. The one who is consummately glorious. Would you help me to know you? And I think our cultures today is full of these mystic requests. Like, just turn on the radio and listen to music. There's this one song, I listen to this CD a lot, and I, I like most of it. And this one song comes on, and it just says over and over and over, show us your glory, show us your glory, show us your glory. In kind of a way that I'm like, they have no idea what they're even asking for. Because if they really had an idea what they were asking for, they would stop asking. Um... Because when you see the glory of God show up, people don't just stand there in some emotional, eyes-closed state. They're on their faces crying out to die because God's glory showed up, right? Like, we're not asking for a mystic experience. We're asking to know God. It's like, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Because remember, knowing, delighting, and transforming. You've got to know him. And so here in verse 18, the cry is, open my eyes. I just wonder how often do we do this? Do we go to the word in the morning like, oh yeah, I've got to have my devotions. Okay, that was, not sure what that said. Okay, good, it's done. Check that box. Now I can get on with my day. Or do you actually go to the word with this, Lord, 
I need you today. I need you to do your work through your word and teach me. Open my blinded eyes to see who you are. You know, sin never sleeps. You don't wake up more sanctified, right? You wake up just grouchy. And so we use excuses like, I need my coffee this morning. Because that means I'm sinful and get away from me. I mean, that's really what we're saying, right? I'm angry right now, and I'm going to depend on coffee to make me better. Like, sin is always attacking, is it not? It's always coming after you, even if you're in bed for seven, eight hours. And so we, we should wake up with, Lord, I need you. I desperately need you. So we must desire him, men and women, but we must know that we need him even to help us know him rightly. You know, I just want to make this real clear this morning. If you're studying God without crying out to him to know him, more than likely it's becoming an academic pursuit. You're gaining head knowledge, but here's, it's going to take you one of two ways. You're going to become cold-hearted. Like, oh yeah, I've got to, I, I know I can win any theological argument with no affection for Jesus. Or you're going to become a legalist. I can do all the right things. And I can tell you how, to do, how to, you should do all the right things with no love for God. Right? So you're either going to become a cold-hearted academic or a, a really hard-hearted legalist because you just have all the right information. You're not going to God and saying, God, humble me in your awesome presence. Teach me of who you are. It's just information on a page. And, and it's going to push you in one of two extremes. But the other side is also true, that if you ask God to reveal himself to you apart from the word, it's going to lead one of two directions, straight mysticism. You know, like those conversations where somebody just says, man, God spoke to me. And then whatever comes out of their mouth next, you're just like, I don't even know what to say right now. I mean, you ever have those conversations? Or you're just like, okay, clearly you, didn't, you don't read your Bible at all. Like, um, wow, I don't even know where to go from here. Just straight mysticism. Or it's going to go to pure emotionalism. Zeal without knowledge. You're going to just be like, oh yeah, I love God. I don't even know anything about him. I mean, is that not, I mean, I, I just, I have a hard time with American Christianity. Because everybody talks about loving God. Nobody even knows who he is. They think God is a heavenly teddy bear that when you have a bad day, you go squeeze. And he just gives you a squeeze back. And then you can go on your merry way. And that's God. Like, no, that's not God. Oh, the, my, and, or you can hear this. Well, my God would never do that. Well, I don't know what God you're worshiping then. Because the God of the Bible is real clear. He does do that. Right? So you're going to go either the route of mysticism or emotionalism. But brothers and sisters, the word of God accompanied by the spirit of God will conform you to Jesus. You'll become like the Savior. Not because of some mystic experience. Not because of some big-headed legalism but because the word of God and the spirit of God together will do God's work and he's gonna make you like his son. And so men and women, we, we must desire God, but we must cry out and need to him because we can't do it in our own. And he delights when we come needing him. You know, some of you in here have children and none of us are parents like God's a parent, like God's a father. So this illustration falls apart. But you know, when your child comes to you not in, a, not in a manipulative ploy, not in a, not in a unkind or angry way, but a simple like, hey, dad, I, I was wondering, could you do this? If, you, if it's in your ability and it's in your means, you're like, yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, if it's like, hey, dad, 
um, my, my shoes have holes in the bottom. And, and my, my feet are hurting all the time. You know what? If I can't, I'm going to go buy you shoes because I love you. And I want to care for you. And that could go into little things or great things because as a parent, we love our children. Well, our God is a perfect heavenly father who loves his children. And we come to him saying, God, I need you. God, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm going to open your word. I'm going to read it. And I want you to reveal yourself to me because I need you. You know what he loves doing? He loves revealing himself to you. He loves making himself known to you. And so might we be a church that runs to the word at, at the same time saying, God, teach me yourself. May I really know you as you desire to be known. So the first thing here is we must desire God and need God and they go hand in hand, we run to him. Well, secondly, we see here that in this cry to God, in this need of God, the psalmist takes a shift in direction and we see that living for God in a world that doesn't is straight up hard. He's gonna turn our attention to something he hasn't talked about yet in this psalm. And he's gonna just say, yeah, it's hard sometimes. It's hard to live for God in a world that doesn't. And I love how the Psalms just identify with us. It's why they are one of the most beloved books of the Christian faith. Because it just, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's me. I get that. that that's me. Like this week, I was there. And so I think God's word is going to minister to us even in this section. Verses 21 to 23a. You rebuke the insolent accursed ones, who wander from your commandments, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies, even though princes sit plotting against me. Let's stop there. It's interesting, up to this point, the only thing David's mentioned when it comes to his struggle is his own flesh. He's talked about how he needs to seek God with his whole heart, how it's hard for him because sin creeps up and he has, to, he has to die to that sin and he wants God to help him in that dying to sin. And, and we should be eager to acknowledge our greatest problem is ourselves. Okay, I want you to hear that this morning, hear it well. Your greatest problem is not circumstances. It's not something that happened to you. Your greatest problem is yourself because you're never very far from your own sin. And I don't say that to you, I say that with you right? My greatest problem is not my two-year-old who makes me angry. My great problem is my anger, right? And my two-year-old brings it out, all right? One of my favorite counseling professors used to say, um, life is the hot water that reveals what already is in your tea bag. <laughs> it's already in your tea bag. Life just brings it out. And you can't blame it on so-and-so or something else. It's just whatever's in your tea bag will come out. All right, so we need to know that our problem is ourselves. But listen to what David says. You rebuke the insolent, accursed ones who wander from your commandments. And then in verse 23, the princes who sit plotting against me. Here we see that we are, we are in a fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. Ephesians 6.22, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We do not sin because of the demon of anger. Okay, we do not lust because of the demon of lust. We don't have a, a demon of covetousness that we have to name and claim and cast out. We sin because we choose to run from God. And our, our answer for walking with God is not exorcism, but repentance and faith in Jesus. All right, so we turn to him, we run to him. But we do live in a world that's hostile to our God. All right? And the reason I'm going all over with this is because I think this is a very confusing topic today. 
because we'd rather talk about the spiritual forces out there than the sin in my own heart. And we, we need to make sure that we're real solid on the sin that's in our own heart, but not ignoring the reality that we live in a world that's hostile to God. And so this world makes it hard on those who diligently want to seek after the Savior. So with that being said, let's walk through these verses. 21, you rebuke, you, God, Yahweh, you rebuke the insolent and accursed ones who wander from your commandments. The word insolent, interesting. It's, the, it's a word that actually has the idea, it communicates boiling over with pride, like a pot on the stove that you forget about. And it just, you come back in the kitchen and you're like, oh no, right, it's just everywhere and it's boiled over. Here he says, the ones who are insolent, it's a weird word, we don't use the word insolent very often today, would be people boiling over with pride and arrogance towards God. And it's interesting in the scriptures how we see God speaking of pride, isn't it? Let me just read you a few verses that you may already know. Proverbs 6, 16, and 17. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. A proud or haughty eyes is the first one. Now, let's just be honest. If you and I were to say, there are seven sins God hates, what's the first on your list? I'd almost guarantee you it ain't pride because that would get real close to home. And we're good at saying, oh, that's a bad one. That's a real bad sin. Do you know that even amongst inmates, they have hierarchies of sin? They do. It's like, well, oh, well, yeah, you're a, you're a really bad dude because you did this. You're, you're, a, you're, you're a pretty normal dude. You did this. Aren't we the same? We have hierarchies of sin. Oh, did you hear so-and-so did that? Yikes. Glad I'm not like them. Brothers and sisters, Proverbs 16, 7 and 17, there are six things the Lord hates, an abomination to God. And he starts with pride. God hates pride. 1 Peter 5, 5, likewise you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to ensure that God will oppose you? Be proud. Like that's what scripture says. You want God to oppose you? Be proud. And guess what? It'll happen. God will oppose you because he hates pride. Interesting here, he says, you rebuke the insolent, the proud, arrogant ones. And then he says the accursed ones, which is interesting because some people say, well, this is God pronouncing a curse on them which there's truth there. Some take the route that while there are people suffering under the curse of sin, which we all are, right? The proud ones who are under the curse. But listen to Deuteronomy 27, 26. Anyone who does not put the words of this law into practice is accursed. So when he here, I think the psalmist, all right, what was the part of the scripture that he had? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He had the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so, and, and typically, if this was Daniel or David, whoever you think it is, more, either one of those men most likely had memorized the first five books of the Bible. That was traditional for a Jewish boy. They would memorize these books. He knew Deuteronomy 27. And he says, the proud ones are under the curse. And look at, and we know this is true because of how he finishes verse 21. How does he finish? He says, you rebuke the insolent and accursed ones who do what? They wander from your commandments. 
they're the ones in Deuteronomy 27 who don't follow your law. And what did God already say about the ones who don't follow his law, who don't keep the, book, the things written in this book? They're going to be under a curse because they run from God. And you know what's interesting? The reason we don't obey this book every time is pride. So it just fits. When I don't obey this book, it's because I actually think in that moment my way is better than God's way. What is that? It's pride, right? Sin, the root of, I would say, almost all sin is pride. I know better than God. And he says, God, you, you, you hate, you rebuke, the cur- and you, there's this curse over them. They wander from you. So he actually defines it for us. And in Scripture, we have a lot of sad examples of this, like, like Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4.30. Oh, look at this great kingdom I have built. Remember what God did? I, it's one of those, like, you can imagine it, like you can imagine Hollywood trying to create this scene. This guy going from the greatest king in the known world to an animal with claws and talons and crawling on the ground for seven years because he thought in that moment that it was me, not the God of heaven. His pride got to the point where what did God do? God rebuked him and God humbled him. And, and we could go story after story of, in scripture of God pronouncing this curse on those who run from him. I just want to take a moment and jump to Galatians 3, all right? Because we can talk about the curse of God on sin, and we can forget that the ultimate thing this should do is point us to the gospel. All right, go to Galatians 3, and we're going to come back to Psalm 119, but I want you to know that as we think about the curse of God on sin, that we're not sitting here saying, oh, good thing I never did that. What it should point us to is, I'm so glad somebody else took my curse. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. What, what curse? Well, pick one. This morning we can pick Deuteronomy 27 because we already read it. Cursed is everyone who doesn't abide by everything written in this book. Guess what? When Deuteronomy 27 was written, there wasn't a single human being alive who could keep all the laws. Do you know what the point of the law is? To show you that you need grace. It was always to show you you need a savior because people thought that they could get to God. And so the law is full of these, these regulations and rules. And you know how we know that the law was designed to show them the need for a savior? Because the law was given with sacrifices. And there was no need for sacrifices if you kept the law. But the law had one great aim. Sin equals sacrifice. Sin equals sacrifice every time pointing to who? The Messiah, who would ultimately come and be the curse. And so we can read this and say, oh yeah, glad I'm not cursed. No, no, we should read this and say, I'm glad Jesus was cursed for me. Because the curse I deserve, he took in full. And so I'm no longer under the curse. Doesn't that just fuel your hearts to love God? To know him? To delight in him? Because we don't read this and say, look down our noses and say, I'm sure glad I'm not like those guys. We read these verses and we say, Lord, that's me. Like, I'm the one who deserves the curse, of, the curse of the law and my sin. And then Galatians 3, just one of the greatest chapters in all the Bible, he fulfilled the law, he took our curse. And we're no longer under that curse of sin. So, 
the evil in verse 21 is defined by those who wander, who continually and regularly run from God. And the psalmist says, there are those who live this way. But look at verse 22. Because he's going to say here that God, honestly, openly before you, I strive not to live that way. So he's not giving this in, well, like, hey, praise God that, you know, they're this way, you curse them, I'm on my own, I'm fine. Verse 22, take away from, excuse me, scorn and contempt, I have kept your testimonies. I think here we see the psalmist pleading on the basis of his own integrity. Because you see the reality is, the weight of sinful living and thinking is hard. Scorn and contempt. Scorn and contempt. Now these could be outside put in, right? These evil people pressuring him, which is true. I think it's also the sense of just internal, the struggle of just, oh, I'm miserable because of my sin. And here we see the psalmist, he's not living in sin. He's not consumed by pride. Remember, he has actually said in verse 9, I'm sorry, verse 10, let me not wander from your commandments. What does the evil one do in verse 21? They do wander. He's saying, God, I am striving to live for you. Would you take away all scorn, all contempt that comes from running from you? Kind of like Job. Right? Job did not plead his own righteousness. Job just said, Lord, I don't think I've rebelled from you. I think I have walked with you. Now, at the end of the day, we, are, we hold on to Christ alone for our salvation. But there are times in life we say, Lord, I'm searching my soul. I think I'm walking faithfully with you. You know, monks didn't get this. You had men where they would spend hours a day confessing everything down to like, I think I squished an ant when I walked. That's not Bible, all right? That's not, we're not searching our souls to become depressed over how much can we come up with that I'm terrible at. No, it was, Lord, I'm walking with you. Kind of like in Psalm 51, he said, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Remove from me scorn and contempt. Oh, that I would know joy in my walk with you. I've kept your testimonies. I've fought to live for you. But in verse 23 then, he comes back to those who are insolent and accursed. And he says, even though, so even though princes sit plotting against me. Let's just stop there. Even though there's evil people who do evil things. Let's just meditate on that for a moment. Here we see that evil people will do evil to God's people. Evil people will do evil to God's people. So, Again, living for God in a world that doesn't is hard because of our flesh. We can't take the Flip Wilson theology that says the devil made me do it. All right, that's not true. The devil doesn't make you do anything. You sin when you're drawn away and enticed by your own heart, your own lust, your own flesh. However, we do live in a world that hates our Savior. Have you noticed that it's cool to be religious? It's really cool to be spiritual. Just don't be a Jesus follower. Because now you're a bigot. Now you're exclusive. Now you hold the absolute truth and you will be persona non grata, right? You will be an outcast of society. That's, that's where our society is and will continue to go because there is an exclusivity to Jesus. And you know what's interesting? We say that we want to be like Jesus, but we really don't want the world to treat us like it treated him, do we? The world killed our Savior. 
I mean, this was the most consummate, loving human being that ever walked the face of the earth. Church historians, church, um, sorry, ancient historians, not Christians, men like Josephus, who were just Roman historians, they talked about this man called Jesus who just did good to everyone. They talked about things like he would go into communities and he didn't do faith healings like phony touch your TV screen, you'll be better. He like cleared out hospitals. Like people that didn't have legs grew legs. People that didn't have limbs, they popped out of nowhere. Like he did phenomenal work to all humanity, even those who put him on the cross. And they still killed him. You can be the most loving Christian in the world, the most kind philanthropic Christian in the world, and there will be times when this world despises you and rejects you. And that's hard, because we don't like that, do we? I mean, we just, we, we want to be loved. And the reality is, if we love like God loves us, there people will notice and say, there's something different about you. But there will be times when they say, we want nothing to do with you, regardless of how you live. Because your life and your faith condemns us. And so the enemies of God will actively resist those who follow him. And so here the psalmist says, there are those in a position of authority and power, princes, royalty, and they actually, it's not accidental plotting, they sit and they scheme of how to do me evil. That's serious. I mean, it's one thing for somebody to just fly off the cuff and say something to you. It's another thing when it's like premeditated. We're gonna take careful thought on how to make your life a wreck. And you're like, God, really? What did I do to deserve this? So the world intensifies the battle we're in, doesn't it? I say that um, I could sin just fine if you locked me in a white-walled cell. I don't need external influences to help me sin. Okay, it comes naturally. But man, you put the world in there, and doesn't it get harder? It's like, man, it feels like it's fighting, sometimes directly, sometimes indirectly, but man, the fight is real. But I love the immediate response. I mean, this is just mind-blowing. He, he, there's this world, and it makes living for God hard. But point three, literally should rock our proverbial worlds. Trusting in God through suffering requires faith. Here we see the man of God say, princes sit plotting against me. What are the very next words out of his mouth? Your servant, your slave, will meditate on your statutes. Wow. When suffering, we must turn to God's unchanging character and word. I, I just, these lines are so vastly different because when life gets hard for me and the enemy from within and without is pressing on my soul, where does my flesh want to go? Where does your flesh want to go? And here he uses the word statutes, which on the back of your sheet you'll notice has the idea of the permanence. Right? There was an unchanging, revealed plan of God. So it's like life is going nuts. God, you're unchanging. And I am going to run to you. Because if I try to hold on to anything else, it will not work. You know, life is like a roller coaster. You know? It like, there's that moment of calm, like chung, 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 chung. But you know it's coming. And then it just starts throwing you. And then, then there's a moment in the middle of every good roller coaster where it just like levels out. And you're like, ah, boom! And it just takes you somewhere else. Is that not life? Where you're just like, yeah, I think it's going okay. And then just like upside down, left side, right side. 
and you're just like, I don't know, upside from downside anymore. And he says, in that moment, you're my North Star. You're the fixed, unchanging constant that I'm going to hold on to because you never change. And in verse 24, he goes from meditating the same thing he did previously to delighting. Your testimonies are my delight. The reality is when suffering, we don't delight well, do we? We just flat out, in our society, we want the world to know how miserable it is. We want authenticity, right? We want to be authentic, and so we just air the dirty laundry. We, we don't delight well in suffering because, sadly, we attach delight to circumstances. That's the problem. We think that circumstances will make us happy or unhappy. And so then we're a wreck because when circumstances go south, we go south. I think the greatest testimony to the power of the gospel is that no matter what happens in your life, you can delight in God. And the world says, you, you, things aren't going well for you. Like your family's falling apart, your kids are falling apart, your marriage is falling apart, your mom's in the hospital, you lost your job, and you're able to say, yeah, man, it's hard. I'm so thankful God hasn't forsaken me. And it's like, what are you talking about? Right, because from the unbelieving mindset, if life goes south, then God has forsaken you. But as a child of God, we know that God never forsakes you. Right, Romans 8, he never leaves you, he never forsakes you, nothing can pluck you from the Father's hand. And so, regardless of what happens, even if those in power sit plotting against you, you're good. Like a man at my last church who, he, he wouldn't lie at work, and they fired him. He had a great job, and he spent the next 10 years having a hard time provide for his family because he was fired for insubordination because he wouldn't lie. Those in power who plot against you, God, you're good. I don't understand, but you're good. And so he is not rooting it in circumstances, but rooting it in the unchanging character of God. And then he finishes the, state, the, the strophe, the section with these, these words. They, these testimonies, are my counselors. It's, it's so obvious. The proud are cursed. If you had time to go through wisdom literature, the proud don't receive counsel, right? A proud heart says, no, I'm right, you're wrong. I don't even, we don't even talk about it. I know you're wrong. I'm not interested in hearing it. And have you ever tried to give wisdom to a fool? Like parenting? You know? Where like your kid wants to grab the stove and you're just like, don't you get it? Don't touch the stove. This isn't a, this isn't a God issue. This is a don't burn your hand issue. Don't touch the stove. And they're just like, hmm, you know. That's what we do with God all the time. All the time. We're on the side of the fool. Just read Proverbs. And you're going to be like, oh, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. And you're just going to be like, I'm, I'm, I'm on the side of the fool because of my pride all the time. But here in Psalm 119, he's contrasting that. The proud are cursed. There's scorn and contempt attached to sin. And then he says, the testimonies of Yahweh, of my God, they're my counselors. And a humble man receives counsel. Do you know there's no better counselor than the written word of God? This is where we must go for, ready for this? All of life and godliness. There is a handbook for life. It's this book. There's a handbook for how to be a good employee. It's this book. There's a handbook for how to be a good husband and wife. It's this book. There's a handbook for raising children to the glory of God. It's this book. Like, we have all we need. 
Oh, it may not be, you know, the second chapter on being a good boss. But there is wisdom here. And we must follow it. And it doesn't mean that the outcome will always be how you want it to be. You might follow this book and your, and your life falls apart. But it's not because God wasn't faithful. It's because we live in a fallen world that's dominated by sin. You know, sadly though, this is true in my life, I'm quick to go to friends. Oh, they're godly friends. Did I go to the word? We're quick to go to Google. Or as my boys say, daddy, just ask the lady in your phone. Right? Just ask, that, just ask her. She'll, she'll tell you what you need to know. Or maybe you're, you go to social media because somebody wrote something sometime, somewhere that you're sure is truth. Or maybe, maybe you've got a different thing you run to. Maybe you go to pop culture because they have the answers. But brothers and sisters, if we delight in God and his word, they will be the sweetest and best of counselors. We'll get later on in this psalm, he says, they make me wiser than even my teachers. Where people are going to say to you, how did you know to do that? I just read my Bible. Like, I, it didn't come from me. It just came from the God of this book. And he is my counselor. Isn't that sweet? It's like life is just, we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. But whatever happens, we can know God is our constant. So Lord, I'm, I'm going to stay true to you because you are faithful. And if everything goes haywire, you don't change. I'm going to hold on to your statutes. So I have two questions as we finish this morning. Maybe you're here and you've never, ever humbled yourself before God and said, God, I need to, I need to repent of my sin and teach me of who you are. You've gone to church. You're here on Sunday morning. But there's never been a moment where you said, you know what? I can't do it on my own. You know what scripture calls that? Repentance and faith. Just crying out to God. God, I want to know you. God, forgive me. God, show me who you are. But you know what I love about the Christian life? It starts with repentance and faith. And you know how it continues? Repentance and faith. You know what your greatest problem is? A lack of repentance and faith. I don't believe enough. I don't go to God and say, God, forgive me, teach me. That's how it begins. It's how it continues. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, you have turned to Christ, is your regular practice one of going to God with this book open and saying, Lord, teach me. Teach me. I want to know you. I find that far too often we make this book our rabbit, our lucky rabbit's foot for the day. Okay, I rubbed it. All right, now, nothing bad should happen to me today. Isn't that how we treat this book? Like, I did my Christian duty today, God. How dare you let that happen in my life? I did that this morning. We think that on a good day is when I, I, get, in the, I get in the book and, and then God's going to be favorable to me that day because I tipped God. God forbid. That's not what this is about. This is about going to him and saying, God, I need you as food for my soul. If I don't eat today, I will not have the energy to function in my job and my life. If I don't open this book and ask you to help me, I will not be able to live for you today. I don't know what's coming at me today. I don't know what life is bringing. But I know I need you. So God, teach me who you are. And if this church was a church of believers who, as a regular pattern of life, went to their Bibles and said, God, teach me. Help me to know you. It would be a church like none other. Because let's be honest. 
One of the greatest confessions of my soul to the Lord on a regular basis is, Father, forgive me for simply neglecting you. It's not what I choose to do most of the time, right? It's that I let other things squeeze out this book. And so might we be a church that says, Lord, I'm gonna go to the word and beg the God of the word to show me himself because my life will be transformed to the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord, it's good to go to your word. Thank you for making yourself known. One of the greatest gifts of your grace in all the world was the revealing of yourself in the sacred scriptures. You did not have to write this book, but you did, and we can know you. Father, forgive us for how often we neglect going to this book simply to know you. And so might we with the psalmist say, my soul is crushed with longing. Oh God, open my eyes. Teach me your statutes. May it be so to the glory of your son. In Christ's name, amen.